Father, we have the great privilege of opening your word, your word given to us, preserved for us throughout the ages. By your faithfulness and through the sacrifice of your people. And here we sit with the privilege to hear the revelation that you have given to us. Particularly as we're coming in this last part of the Gospel of Matthew. These, these uh, truths and the great recounting of the events that record for us the suffering of our Savior. Our Lord and our God on our behalf for our sin and We do ask you to open our minds, Holy Spirit, to see with greater clarity, to loom to us the great truths of the gospel and realities that we'll look at this morning. And would you particularly on this morning prepare our hearts as we meditate on these things to come to your table, to take of this meal that started with the disciples in the upper room, has been practiced by your people through the ages, and that we will continue to do until you return and take us home and establish your kingdom on this earth. Would you prepare our hearts to remember all of the glorious wonders that are presented for us in here in symbol and form in the elements that we'll take in the Lord's Supper. And we commit our time to you, and we ask these things in the matchless name of him who died and rose again for us, in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, open up your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We'll be looking at verses 69 to 75. Matthew 26, 69 to 75. And we're becoming well familiar with the reality of all that the Lord suffered for us. Ultimately, this is going to lead to the cross. But there was not only the cross that was a part of his suffering for our sin, there was the shame, there was the humiliation, there was the rejection, there was the complete, the complete rejection of his people and even the failure of his disciples, all of which was part of what was designed and ordained by the Father for the Son to suffer for us. And now as we come into this section of Matthew, uh, we are reminded and come to one of the most tragic failures recorded for us in all of Scripture. It was colossal. It was amazing. It was shocking, not only to us, who, if we hadn't already known the story before, if we were just following the life of Peter, we would have expected greater things. But we have recorded for us in Scripture one of the most humiliating and humbling failures of one of the great saints of God. But in this failure, we also have one of the most glorious pictures of the tenderness of Christ and the way that Christ restores his own. Now, as we've mentioned briefly, as we've gone throughout uh, this passage, that Matthew is intentionally, as are some of the other gospel writers, presenting to us a contrast. He's laying two opposite extremes next to us in parallel fashion as he recounts these events. And so here he's doing this. In the, particularly in these, these records of the Lord's trial and here in Peter's failure. And he's doing it in a way that contrasts the glory of Christ and the perfection of Christ and the faithfulness of Christ against the failure of everybody else. The sin that was being perpetrated against him, his faithfulness to the Father through it all. And in light of that and against that backdrop is the rejection of his people the unbelief and failure even of his own disciples. 
And here it is then, the failure, of course, of Peter. The failure of Peter. One writer, Frederick Bruner, captures this, borrowing from others, but the contrast that Matthew sets up for us well. Let me read his words. He says this, Matthew places Peter's trial of discipleship parallel to Jesus' trial of messiahship. Three times Jesus is confronted by verbal threats. Three times Peter is similarly tested. While Jesus gives the good confession inside the courtroom, the disciples will give a bad confession outside the court, in the courtyard. Most of our trials and tests, like Peter's, will take place in the more everyday life of courtyards. It is ironic, too, the act the very moment Jesus' prophetic power was being taunted by the Sanhedrin, his prophecy was coming true in Peter. End quote. And these are the contrasts. Christ being shown as the faithful one, his disciples as faithless in that moment. Jesus as the Holy One sent from God, the leaders as the apostate nation rejecting their God whom they claimed to serve. And it's all laid out here before us again to magnify, to magnify the glory of Christ. So this morning we're going to consider one of the greatest failures of faith in all of Scripture and one of the greatest pictures of the tenderness of Christ as our Savior and how he restores the broken sinner. So read with me and then we'll look at this a bit more closely. Beginning in verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. And then he began to curse and to swear. And he says, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said. Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Let's look first then at the... The reality of a broken sinner. The reality of a broken sinner. And note first under this, this outline is in your bulletin, that God ordains failure as a part of the Christian experience. God ordains failure as a part of the Christian experience. As a matter of fact, one unavoidable reality of being a Christian in this world is that we will fail. We will fail the Lord. We will sin. Scripture is replete with examples of God's people failing the God whom they love. We can think of many that are some of the more colossal failures recorded for us in Scripture. David, of course, comes to mind right away. A righteous king, one who was God's friend, who loved God with all of his heart, and yet was one who stands before us with massive sin and massive failure before God. Adultery, lying, murder, even disobeying the Lord's command when he counted the people of Israel, which caused the death of thousands of the nation of Israel. We have Abraham lying when tested, Moses distrusting God and hitting the rock and failing then to be able to enter into the promised land, Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, who probably were believers, I hold them to be anyway, who lied and were judged by the Lord as an example before all of the church. 
to hold up his holy standard. And there's many other examples given to us in all of Scripture. But beyond even all of these examples, if none of these examples were given, if you know Christ, you live with yourself every day. And you know your own failures. You know your own sin. You know how many times that you have acted unfaithfully, that you've been ashamed of Christ and to speak of Him. You know when you've had wrong attitudes of pride, wrong attitudes of self-righteousness, wrong attitudes of unbelief and the actions that flow out of those wrong and sinful hard attitudes. You know that. You know it. God's Word gives us then a realistic picture this side of heaven about remaining sin in the child of God. Though justified, though forgiven, though righteous in Christ, there is still the reality of the principle of sin and unrighteousness in even His beloved, His redeemed ones. We are at the same time righteous in Christ, regenerated and dwelled by the Holy Spirit, and also unrighteous. We are both believing and unbelieving in our experience all the time. And so in order to help us grow as Christians, in order to help us see these areas of weakness and that sin that can hide in the little dark corners of our heart that we can be so unaware of, either intentionally or unintentionally, God designs for us trials, circumstances that challenge us and present a threat to our security, a threat to our pride, a threat to all of those things that are ungodly that we might be holding on to. And he brings us situations that help us to evaluate where we really are and to grow us and to mature us in faith. One has said this, a person's involuntary response to the unexpected is a more reliable indicator of his character than his planned reaction to a situation he anticipates. We all know that in our own lives, and God has certainly laid out one for us here in the example of Peter, who was caught unaware, and his heart was exposed, and it broke him, and rightfully so. Let's look at this account then. Look at verse 69. Verse 69, as we see this colossal failure of Peter. It says, now Peter is sitting outside in the courtyard. Now we skipped over this last week. You remember that he first mentioned that Peter was following him in verse 58, He says, Peter was following him at his distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And he entered in, sat down with the officers to see the outcome. And then he just drops it. He just moves on then to the trial of Jesus that was going to take place. This false trial, as we looked at, this unjust trial of Jesus. And now he's swinging back around and he's picking it up. And as we noted, he's setting up a contrast here between the experience of Jesus and his perfect love and his perfect faithfulness with Peter's great lapse of faith. Even while Jesus was being abused by the leaders, here the rock and the leader of the disciples is going to fail. Now, there's one important note that we have to mention, and it's very important for us to mention before we get into some of the details of this account. And it is this. It is to be reminded that one of the great demonstrations of God's wisdom and His goodness and how He has given us His Word is He has given us four testimonies, four witnesses to to the life of Christ in all of its aspects and here to these final hours in the life of Christ. And by these four independent testimonies, by his own chosen instruments, we can compare them all together and fill out the details and we can get a fuller picture. So that we're not dependent only on one eyewitness, but we are dependent on ultimately four in this case. 
Now, because sometimes then there are four independent eyewitnesses to the events that are being recorded for us in the Gospels, there are also different details that the writers bring out, each individual writer brings out. And there are different things that they are emphasizing for us that, that fits within the flow of what they're writing. So it's important then for us to understand some of these differences and details. And, and as we do that, I want to note just two very important principles. Two very important principles. And the first is this. That each of the gospel accounts, as I just mentioned, is an independent record of what happens and emphasizes different details. That's why some of the details are different. That's why some of the events are recorded in one and they're not recorded in another. Because each one is writing independently to reveal Christ as God and the Holy Spirit was moving them to do so. Secondly, more things that were said and happened than are actually recorded for us in Scripture. So in the events that are surrounding uh, this denial of Peter, Peter said more things than are recorded for us in these events. The bystanders and the people around said more things than are recorded for us in these events. It didn't all happen in just the few seconds that it takes us ultimately to read what happened. And we see hints of that even as we go through. For example, in verse 73, there were bystanders that came, bystanders that came up and said to Peter, and he, and he records their speech. There were many of them speaking. They were not all speaking at the one time. They were speaking independently, and they were all saying things. And what they are said, what was said, is caught by the different gospel writers. So in reality, there were three separate periods or instances that Peter's denial took place. And while there is some overlap between these writers... Each one, again, emphasizes different things. Each one. Now, some people want to then pick up on these differences and call them discrepancies and contradictions. But those who do so come to the Bible already with an intent to try to make it sound wrong. They're not looking for the truth. They're coming with the intent to justify their unbelief. And therefore, they approach it without even the least amount of common sense, observation, or reasonableness that they would apply to the rest of their life and in other things. So I think just to, to end this point, one, one old writer, Henry Alford, in, in a work called Alford's Greek Testament, kind of summarizes it in this way. He says, If for one moment we could be put in complete possession of all the details as they happened, each account would find its justification and the reasons of all the variations would appear. And so then that's how we understand it. And so as we come through here, we're we're being confronted then or being shown or presented with Matthew's account of the details of what happened to fit in Matthew's picture of Christ in these final hours, being rejected by the leaders and here being failed by Peter. Now, before we actually do jump into Matthew, though, I want you to turn over just briefly to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, John being written, the last of the Gospels to be written, fills out for us various details that some of the other synoptics didn't. He knowing, knowing what the other writers had said and having also his own agenda under the guidance of the Holy Spirit or his own uh, purpose in writing, fills out for us some of the details. And so here, in John 18, beginning in verse 15, he notes for us, as did the other synoptic writers, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, That Simon Peter was following Jesus, but then he adds, and so was another disciple. Another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. 
Now, there's discussion over who this other disciple actually is. There's no way to be dogmatic or absolutely sure. Very likely it was the Apostle John himself who had some kind of relation with the high priest. He knew those who were in positions of power in the high court. And so he also was following. But it's not likely that he stayed. Or at very least, he drops off the scene after this mention by John. And the focus then becomes Peter. And then with all of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of course, he is the focus. Peter is the focus. And so here he is, John notes for us that he was, Peter was there, he was following at a distance. John had already gone into the courtyard. Peter was lagging a little bit behind. Maybe he was more fearful, timid, he couldn't keep up with John. Who knows the circumstances, but now he's outside. Remember, this is taking place in the private residences of Annas and then of Caiaphas. Their houses joining together in a way that they shared a common courtyard. And so John is already in the courtyard. Peter's outside. John realizes it goes, speaks to a slave girl. Uh, He says in verse 17, and the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, or excuse me, verse 16, but Peter was standing outside the door and the other disciple was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. And so then that is the scene. And then John notes in verse 17 that this slave girl who kept the the door is actually the one who went up to Peter first and said, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Well, you can flip back to Matthew, if you would, in chapter 26. And that's where Matthew is picking it up. Matthew is picking it up here at this point with the identification, most likely, of this slave girl who was at the front door when John let him in. Now, Mark and Luke actually add that he was standing around warming himself by a fire. So he had gained entrance into this courtyard. It was cold. There were others, including officers, which are mentioned by Matthew, standing around this fire. And Peter is there with them, warming himself and watching the events as they're unfolding. And yet, as he's standing there warming himself by the fire, he is, in fact, frightful. He's anxious, he's fearful. Augustine said this, recommending on this verse, that he stood at the fire, speaking of Peter, but he was frozen with chilling fear. That's an accurate description. Warming himself by the fire outside, but inside filled with fear. And as they're around the fire, Peter, anxious about what is happening, fearful for his own safety, but compelled to stay somehow near to Jesus, somehow to follow these events as much as he could... The slave girl comes up to him and says to him, you were with Jesus the Galilean. And in Matthew, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. Simple statement. Seems unthreatening on the surface. And yet it was enough to send Peter over the edge. As a matter of fact, Luke records for us that it wasn't so casual. That while they were standing around the fire, sitting around the fire, that actually this servant girl had been looking at him intently, had been gazing at him, staring at him, studying his face as the light of the fire illumined him in the dark night. And no doubt he felt the gaze of this servant girl as he was standing there as well. And because the fear was already in his heart, no doubt he was increasing in his anxiety and in his nervousness. And then she added, this man was with him too, Luke records for us. And hearing this, Peter was then devastated. He was devastated. 
Which is pretty striking because this is the same man who had just earlier, not long before this, chopped off the ear of the high priest slave. The one who was ready to challenge the Roman cohort and then all of the Jewish leaders and the others who were there. was ready to do it with his own sword. But of course that was when Jesus was by his side. Now he's all alone. Feeling exposed. Feeling vulnerable feeling like he has no protection, that he's just out there on his own. And the servant girl then comes before him and exposes him, and he cowers. He cowers. And he says, I do not know what you are talking about. He denied Christ. He denied Christ. You might ask yourself, how could there be such a change? How could there be such a change of one who had such clear and solid emotions... Such commitment to Christ, such emotional fervor where he proclaimed that he would never deny Christ. And now he is doing the very thing that he said that he would not do. Let me make at least one, I believe, helpful observation here. Helpful observation. It really carries through all of these denials. But it's this. And it's something we need to recognize in ourselves as well. That when Peter was standing around with the other disciples, the other 11 disciples, and when he was with Jesus and they shared the Passover meal and so forth, Peter had a strong emotion of confidence. A strong emotion of confidence. What I want to notice here is that there's a big difference between emotion and the conviction of confidence that comes through faith. There's a big difference between those two things. Emotions rise and fall. Emotions are strong one moment and weak the next. And therefore, they're unreliable. And if your courage and if your faithfulness and if your boldness for Christ doesn't rest on anything more than momentary emotions of conviction, ultimately it is going to fail. And we will never rise above what is superficial. And anytime any real test comes, anytime any real threat comes to us, we are going to fail if it doesn't rise above that. And you'll never grow in maturity. Convictions are based on faith, and real faith produces convictions and stable affections. In fact, if Peter were operating out of faith in this moment, and not certainly the way, just the way he felt, then his faith would have been controlling his emotions. His fear would have been subdued to the truth. His confidence in who Christ was and what Christ had promised and what Christ had said. And ultimately, if we're growing, and a sign of spiritual maturity is that our emotions are made to submit to what is true, to deeper commitments of faith. In other words, it's not being controlled by the emotion of fear, but rather controlling it and even reflecting by our emotions, a deep-seated faith in Christ. So Peter had an emotional bravado, as we do sometimes, maybe if we hear a certain song during a service, or we read a book, or whatever, whatever, and then we fail immediately after that, because we didn't have a proper meditation and a proper understanding that was producing deep faith. We were resting then on our, not only ourselves, but on an emotion. And so here it is with Peter. He had not yet learned, but he would soon learn that the real strength was found in his weakness and his dependence on Christ, which is what Peter, Paul would say later uh, as a disciple or as apostle of Christ. And so here it is, though Peter hadn't learned that lesson yet, but he was going to. It, and so now here he is in this test that's brought before him, and he feels exposed and vulnerable, and no doubt felt that those around him were hostile to him. 
And as soon as he is exposed, he denies it. And so this is then verse denial number one. He tells this servant girl, I do not know what you are talking about. Other writers say he adds, I don't understand what you're talking about. And really you can see a subtleness about Peter's response here, can't you? And it's really a subtleness of his lying that isn't just uh, true to Peter. It's a, it's a way a lot of people, maybe us at certain times, have tried to weasel out of telling the truth while trying to somehow salve our conscience that we didn't exactly, we didn't exactly tell a lie. What he says is, I just don't know what you're talking about. I just don't understand. We've seen this in others. Sometimes parents see this in our young children. I just didn't understand. I didn't know what you were talking about. I shouldn't be here accused the way that you're accusing me. One has said that Peter could go away after this kind of subtle trickery on his own conscience and say, I never denied Jesus. I just didn't understand the question. Of course, Luke removes all of that and records that he also said later, woman, I do not know him which is a direct lie, a direct lie. And so there's denial number one. And then Matthew notes in verse 71 that he walked away from that crowd. He went out to the gateway. This is a a reference to the front gate near the entrance of the home. Mark refers to it as a porch, a front area after you've come into the house off the street. Apparently no one followed him as he walked away. And you can just imagine that he tried to walk away as coolly and nonchalantly as possible. Maybe he even acted annoyed that they would even think that that was true of him all the time inside an anxious wreck outside trying to act totally cool so nobody would blow his cover. No telling how long in this instance it took before the second test. Luke twenty two fifty eight simply notes that it was a little later that another saw him. Matthew just leaves it open, but Mark 14 tells us it was actually another servant girl. Another one of the servant girls in that courtyard area. And no doubt that Peter at this time had thought he had evaded discovery. That he had gotten away with it. That he was home free. And yet again he's called out. Except this time she doesn't speak directly to Peter. But actually to the crowd and the bystanders that are around. Notice what she says. That she said in verse 71. To those who were there. So to other people who were standing around this fire. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And then John adds that several among the group. Possibly in response to the servant's girl's statement. Started to say as well. You are not also one of his disciples are you? And so now it's kind of mounting. And more and more people are starting to take notice of him. And he's getting more and more nervous. All eyes are on him. He's really the center of conversation at this point among this small group. And no doubt you felt this way. That pressure of feeling like every eye is on you. Sometimes we feel it when we do something stupid or embarrassing. And we feel like everybody in the world is looking us at us in that moment. But here it's even far worse than that with Peter. Because he has that feeling, but not just because he did something foolish or embarrassing, but because he's concealing a lie that he knows is true. And they're speaking the truth. And now he knows that they know that it's true and he has to cover it up. And yet, while all this is going on inside of him, he's trying to save his own flesh. He knows that they're right. He knows that he's been exposed. And yet, he's trying to cover it up. And he feels fearful 
He's overwhelmed by his emotions. And he says again in verse 72 here, I don't know the man. I don't know him. Leave me alone. And Matthew says that he added an oath to it. And Matthew four, or Mark 14 puts this in a form of the verb here that tells us that he was repeatedly doing this. He was repeatedly saying, I don't know the man. He was repeatedly giving an oath, which simply means here is that he was calling God as his witness. I swear to God is a way that we would say it wrongly, sinfully, but that's what he was doing. One said this, that Peter called God as a witness to his lie. He knows he's lying, and yet he's swearing by God's own name that in fact he is telling the truth. And a matter of fact, we know this, that the more one often professes their truthfulness and wants to declare their character, really is probably more of an indication that they're trying to cover something. That kind of intense determination to prove that they're not lying. And that's basically what Peter was doing here. And it shows how absolutely out of touch with reality he was. And again, he was being controlled entirely by the emotion of fear and a sense of self-protection. And there is in that then a reminder to us also as well that there is a certain mercy in this kind of failure to the Lord, this kind of denial. I mean, there is the kind of denial that is more settled, that's deeper, that's, in, that's intentional rejection of Christ. Matthew uh, 10 records the words of Jesus identifying that kind. He says, look, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. Here Peter is denying Christ before men, but it's not a settled and deep down denial. It's just that weakness of fear, which doesn't make it excusable, but it does make it more understandable. So Matthew notes then later in verse 73 that a little later the bystanders came up to him. Matthew or Luke 22 records for us that this time it was actually about an hour later. Now he's already denied him twice and we're coming up here to the third. He's again just only mounting in his fear of all that is swirling around him. And this time... There is an even greater chorus of voices that are against him. In verse 73, the bystanders came up. So now there's many of them that are around. Surely you are one of them, they say, for even the way you talk gives you away. Even the way you talk. He had the accent of a Galilean. And his cover now is even more blown. And the point here of noting his accent isn't just that he had an accent and he was a follower of Jesus, but there wouldn't have been other Galilean accents there among that group. Those were Jews from, Judea, or from Jerusalem, from around there. And yet, here Peter is clearly from outside, and there was really no reason for him to be there in the court. And so his accent would have stood out. And so they're wondering, well, why else would a Galilean be here if he's not a follower of this Jesus who was also from Galilee, the areas of Galilee. Clearly, he must be one of his followers. And Peter picked up on the implications. And he was afraid, again, almost out of his mind with fear. As Med John even adds to us, adds for us in John 18, that one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, Malchus, he was identified for us, was there as well, and also said in verse 26 of John 18, Did I not see you in the garden with him? 
Again, Peter's exposed, he's afraid, and he knows that they know who he is. The pressure and fear that had been amounting erupted into his final and most vehement denial of Christ. And he says in verse 74, with curses and swearing, I do not know the man. I don't know the man. He's almost fanatic here in his desire to separate himself from any relation or knowledge of Christ that he can. He wants to be as far away from any identification with Christ as he can. Here, not only saying oaths, but cursing and swearing. Which most likely here does not mean, almost assuredly, that he used foul language and curse words. That's how we would think of it. But that's not what it means. It means then that he began to call curses down on himself. This is even stronger than an oath. Like, if I'm lying, may God curse me. May God judge me if I'm lying. He's using everything that would have been available to him to try to make his case. Curses down upon his head. Swearing oaths of affirmation before God. Swearing that he's telling the truth. And one said, in order to save his skin, he howls like the wolf pack. He wants to distance himself from Christ as much as he can. And he's willing to lie. He's willing to reproach Christ. To show contempt for the name of Christ before these people because of his fear of being caught. His fear of the consequences of being identified as a Christian. Although they weren't called that, of course, then. But being identified with Christ. And beloved, we can feel that way. Have you ever felt that way? You almost hope that nobody finds out that you're a Christian because of what they'll think of you. You try to play it off. Or if they do know it, you try to play it down. Well, this is what Peter was doing, except to a much more intense degree, being totally irrational and increasing in his deceptive behavior. And he gives one of his most ardent denials of Christ. His deepest expression of his fear and the shame of being associated with Christ. And then two things happen. Two things happen to to increase the intensity of what Peter was already feeling. The first is this. And this is recorded for us by Matthew and the other gospel writers. It says then that at the end of verse 74, he says, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. Immediately a rooster crowed. Immediately he remembered the words of Jesus around the supper. He said that before a rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. You'll deny me three times. In that moment, in an instant, the scene of that whole meal flashed before his eyes and the words of the Lord and probably his own words in response to the Lord came ringing through his ears. And Peter's world in that moment came crashing down around him. And every bit of his failure and his shame was felt by him. But that's not all. That's only the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened is recorded for us in Luke 22, verse 61. And it records to us that at that time, so as Jesus is now above, in a room above the courtyard, because he looked down to see Peter, as he's up there, obviously visible from the courtyard, at this point he has probably swelling and blood from the blows that were given to him in his face. He can clearly hear, Peter could, the mocking that was going on. Uh, against Jesus, prophesy for us if you are indeed the Christ. 
It's why he could hear these things and why he could see these things. While he heard the crowing of the rooster and feeling the full weight of his shame. Luke records for us in verse 61 that the Lord turned and he looked at Peter. Their eyes met. Their eyes met in that moment. As the final words of denial were being spoken by Peter, his own eyes met the Lord's. They met the Lord's. You can just imagine what that look felt like. Now Luke doesn't tell us the expression on the Lord's face, but I imagine that it was probably filled with tenderness and love towards Peter. Tenderness and love towards Peter. As a matter of fact, it was probably a look that had the same tender love that was causing Christ to give himself over as he was and to be standing there and enduring what he was. He was enduring it for Peter and for the other disciples and for all of his own. It was for love that he was going to the cross to bear the suffering for sin, even the very sin that Peter was committing against him at that moment. I imagine it was a look of love. And that is actually encouraging to consider because when you fail and whenever you're crushed under the weight of your sin and your shame and your sorrow before God, it is the love of Christ that gazes at us. It is then that we remember the nail-pierced hands, His suffering on our behalf. It's there that we remember the reality of forgiveness and how precious that word really is in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. What more could you want than to know that God looks in those moments with a heart that wants to forgive to the repentant sinner? But Peter felt that now in the midst of his sin and his denial, and he was absolutely crushed. Knowing he had done everything that was a dishonor to Christ, he felt it. He felt it deeply, and he was broken. And I would suggest here under this next is that brokenness then is a reflection of sincere love for Christ. Brokenness is a reflection of sincere love for Christ. That was all Peter could take. He was utterly devastated. And what does he record for us? Matthew, after he said those words, after his eyes met the Lord, he went out and he wept bitterly. He went out and he wept bitterly. And there was really nothing else for him to do. And let me suggest to you, it was totally right and appropriate for him to go out and weep bitterly. It was right for him to do that. He was ashamed, he was devastated, and he was convicted, and he should have been. He failed the Lord. He failed the Lord, and we need to learn from this. It is appropriate for us, when we sin, to be broken of our sin. To completely own up to our sin. To feel the shame, not to rationalize it. The wrong response is to try to rationalize it, to try to minimize it in some way, to somehow make it less than what it actually is. It's not. It's not. It's disobedience and sin to the Lord. And Peter felt it, and he should have. He should have felt it. He fully acknowledged and felt his guilt before Christ, and he was broken. And we need to be there. We need to fully own our sin when we sin because it's only from that place that true repentance is going to happen and that a realization of God's grace is going to be grasp. Don't hide from your sin. Don't hide from it. Don't try to minimize it. Don't try in any way make excuses. Fully own it. Own it as your own and go to the cross and go to the cross of Christ. 
So his brokenness here then was a sincere reflection, though, of his sincere love for Christ. If you truly love Christ and you desire to honor him and to obey him and to please him with your life, then you're going to feel sorry when you fail to do that. If you have little sorrow for your sin, then you have little love for Christ. Me as well. Remember Luke 7, the parable of the woman who was weeping, washing Christ's feet with her tears. He says, those who are forgiven much love much. She was broken over the tenderness that she had received, but those were tears of joy and gratitude and thankfulness. But it also goes that she had, no doubt, those same tears over her sin when she first came to Christ and to realize the forgiveness that was available in Him. And so the reality of sincere love for Christ is not the absence of sin, it is the hatred of sin. And that's an important point to remember. Sincere love for Christ, Peter's sincere love for Christ was not shown in the fact that he'd ever failed him, that he never did fail, that he never did sin. What showed Peter's love for Christ is that when he did sin, he owned up to it and he was broken for it because he loved Christ, because he loved the Lord, because he knew he'd failed one whom he so loved and was endeared to. The mark of salvation and growing maturity is this, is that we hate our sin more and more. A mature Christian actually externally sins less, but they feel the wounds of their sin more and more deeply because their love for Christ is that much greater. And so offending him has much a greater impact on them. But so also does their gratitude for grace and confident in the perfect and completed work of Christ. And so the example here then is this, that Christians stumble and fall, but they get back up and they're compelled by faith and love for Christ. They're compelled by a righteous and regenerate nature. They're compelled by the prompting of the Holy Spirit within them to turn to Christ. They are prompted by the promises of the Father and His grace in Christ to those who trust in His Son. They're compelled by that. And so as broken as, as we are, we, we are driven to Christ if we know Him. And if the Spirit of God for one who does not yet know Him is working in an individual, then their brokenness over sin is going to lead them, even for the first time, to the foot of the cross and to trust in Christ. Now, we're going to cover this more next time, but I want to at least mention here, and we'll swing back around to these next week. What Peter is feeling here is a godly sorrow. It's a godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7 holds up for us what is a worldly sorrow and what is a godly sorrow. Again, we'll look at it more next week, but let me, let me give to you a couple of marks of comparison here. A godly sorrow, let me just say, is one that is accepted by God. It's the right kind of sorrow. It's the kind of sorrow that the Spirit of God produces in one in whose heart he's working. A worldly sorrow is a totally self-centered sorrow. Here are a few different marks of how to distinguish that. Godly sorrow sees sin in relation to Christ, in relation to God himself. In other words, they see sin as having offended God, the one that they love. Worldly sorrow sees sin in relation to self. It's more of a personal failure, a fear of consequences, and so on. A godly sorrow, secondly, turns to Christ in faith and seeks Him in the Father's grace. A worldly sorrow turns inwardly towards self. Turns inwardly towards self. A godly sorrow produces righteousness and a renewed desire for obedience and to be faithful for Christ. A worldly sorrow produces despair, hopelessness, discouragement, depression, because Christ is nowhere in the picture. We're going to see that modeled in Judas. Peter was broken 
He was weeping. He was totally convicted by his sin. And he went out and he wept bitterly. But that was good. It was the right kind of tears. It was the kind of tears that he should have had. And as a result of this, he grew. God used this trial to mature him, to grow him, ultimately to bless him and the church. But in order to get to that place, he needed to be utterly devastated. He needed to be utterly devastated. And he was. Let's notice lastly here, and we're going to swing back around to that point again as well. But let's notice lastly the tender Savior. The tender Savior. So he was a broken sinner. That's where we need to be. That's a good place to be, beloved, is broken before you're, with your sin. That's good, a right kind of broken. That's where, that's where humility takes place. That's where the grace of Christ really takes on its preciousness and its luster as we're reminded what he did for us on the cross. Let's notice next and then a tender Savior. And this really is at the heart of the whole account. It's at the very center. Peter is really not the center of this account, but Christ is. But Christ is. Christ himself. Christ himself as the expression of the Father's love through him and in him. And even his own love for sinners. Because again, we are guilty. We fail the Lord constantly, daily, in some measure and in some way, we, did, we don't complete any day and say, I have absolutely nothing to be ashamed of or nothing that I can see that did not fail the Lord in some way. So we always have that. Peter felt it distinctly here because of the magnitude of his, of his sin. And so what shines here is the grace of Christ to Peter and to all of us who know him. And first of all, I want you to notice this then, how the tenderness of Christ... And it is this, and the fact that God knows our sin and weakness beforehand. And in fact, he knows it better than we do. It doesn't take, sin doesn't take God by surprise. Peter's sin did not take Christ by surprise. He knew it. He knew where he was weak. He knows where you are weak. He knew where Peter would fail. He knows where we are going to fail. He knew where Peter needed to be humbled. And he knows where we need to be humbled. And so this really displays that point Two marvelous truths. Two marvelous truths for our encouragement. The fact that God knows our sin ahead of time. Let me give them to you. The first is this. Because God knows our sin and our weaknesses ahead of time, He knows where you're weak. He knows where you're most tempted. He knows where you're most likely to fail. And because God knows that, it means this, that He wisely and perfectly designs our trials individually for us. They're they're measured by wisdom. They're measured by, for the Christian, his fatherly love and care for his own. God knew that Peter was proud, that he was self-sufficient, that he was relying on emotions and not a genuine faith in Christ. He knew that, and he needed, knew that Peter needed to be devastated. And so he told him, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He told them all earlier that Satan has permit, asked permission to sift you like wheat. He knew then that Peter was going to go through this and that it would crush him. It would rock his world. And even though Satan was behind it at one level, he said Satan demands or asks permission to sift you like wheat. What Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. God meant for good. Again, Peter was impulsive, proud, self-confident, prayerless, at times even unsubmissive to the Lord putting his own thoughts above the Lord's instructions, such as when he said, oh no, you're not going to go to the cross. And he said, get behind me, Satan. 
He was not totally submitted to the Lord, and this kind of proud sufficiency needed to be brought low. And beloved, that's how it is with your trials. God knows where your weakness lies. And what may be a difficult trial for you may not be a difficult trial for someone else. And what is a difficult trial for someone else may not be a difficult trial for you. But God knows as the father of each what each of his children need and he designs it to break you personally, to test you personally, sometimes to break you down and show you sin, sometimes just to exercise the muscle of faith and to grow in a certain area for different reasons that God alone knows often. And so here it is with Peter, and here it is with us, that God knows your sin, and you can know that ahead of time that he is in complete control. The second encouraging point about that is this, that our sin has already been completely covered by the atonement of Christ. Our sin has already been completely covered for those who know him. Again, Jesus knew where Peter would fail, God knows where you would fail, but the amazing reality is is that Christ already knew that that failure was not going to be the end. Why? One, according to Luke 22, because he'd already prayed for him. Christ was acting as his mediator, his intercessor. Secondly, because Christ knew he was already going to the cross to pay the penalty for that sin. That was going to be wiped away. This was to sanctify Peter. This was to make him more like Christ. It was not to destroy him and remove him from grace. It was so that he would experience the grace that he had already been given in Christ to a greater degree, to a deeper degree. The fact is that Peter's sin had already been atoned for. And what we have here then is a picture of the perfection of God's keeping grace for his children. Peter's sin was going to be paid for. If you know Christ, the guilt of that sin in terms of eternal judgment has already been removed, though there may be discipline in life. But ultimately, if you are a believer, what is demonstrated in the life of Peter here is you will not fail ultimately. And you won't fail ultimately, not because you're strong, but because God is faithful. Not because you have this great persevering strength by the own power of your will, but because God has determined before the foundation of the world to save you and to keep you as his own. That's why, as a matter of fact, Peter learned this lesson well. And he encouraged others with the lesson that he learned. He says this in First Peter, just listen. Remember, he's writing to a group of Christians who are being tested. As a matter of fact, he says this in verse 6. Rejoice greatly in this fact, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. But he said just before that, this, he says to these suffering Christians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's reserved for you. It's not going anywhere. And then he says this, you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so what he encourages them with there, Peter, Peter who is now broken, Peter who is now weeping bitterly, Peter who has just failed the Lord, yet was kept by the Lord because he belonged to him. And in the same way, Peter tells those believers in 1 Peter, and through his word he tells us, God will preserve your faith. He does that by bringing it to the end, 
oftentimes. He does that by bringing us sometimes to the point of despair, but ultimately the endurance of our faith rests in the sovereign hand of God and because the perfection of Christ's atonement on our behalf. And this is then one of the greatest confidences of grace that we have to know that we're kept. And this is really a confidence. This is really a, a blessing of faith that takes place over time more so. It matures and it gets deeper. And it does is because as you live with your heart longer and you live with the reality of your weakness and your sin, you live more and more with the reality that you left to yourself would deny Christ and leave him forever. And you felt that within yourself. If you've been a believer for any amount of time, you felt that sometimes very deeply. And you know that the reason that you have not denied Christ is because God has done a genuine work in your heart of regeneration, uniting you to Christ, giving you his spirit, and keeping you, even though he brings you low. And that is a great confidence that God gives to his children as they go. It's the confidence that Peter spoke of in Romans, or excuse me, Paul spoke of in Romans 8, 39, when he says, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So when you've walked through valleys, you've weathered trials, been confronted with your own depravity, the comfort is that both breaks us and at the same time builds us up is the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Let's notice lastly here this, and then we're going to come into the table. How tender Christ is and gracious to the brokenhearted Peter. Peter was crushed, and that's a good place to be. When you're crushed, that's when you can know the kindness and the mercy of God. Let me just remind you of this one uh, striking statement of that in Isaiah. And we'll relate it to Peter. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen says this, Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place, also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. There is the greatness the magnificence, the transcendence, if you will, of God, and yet his nearness and his closeness to who? The broken and the contrite of heart. And that's who God came to call. That's who Christ came to call. Not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those who recognize their sin and their need of a Savior. But here's his tenderness. Flip back over just briefly, and this is what's going to take us to the Lord's table. John 21. John 21, you're familiar. So much to say with this, but let's just look at the last part. You'll remember that this is the last really account and interaction we have between Peter and Jesus until after the crucifixion. And then he rises and, of course, Peter goes to the grave and so forth. And then John records for us and sees sees the empty tomb. So there's after Christ has risen, Christ has already defeated death, as it were, crushed Satan on the head. And now they're, they're there, but Peter is still feeling the shame. He's really still feeling the shame of what he did. He's not totally yet, at least emotionally restored back to the Lord. He loves him. He's committed to him, but he's feeling his weakness. No doubt, he who made such a strong testimony of his undying confidence and failed so miserably, and not only failed so miserably, but of course for us as recorded in Scripture, everybody knows how much he failed. Certainly the other disciples knew how much he failed. Feeling the shame of that, he says in verse 3 of John 21, he says, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll come along with you too. And they all really had failed. No doubt they all felt some shame and they all had reason to because they all left the Lord alone on that night to suffer by himself. Well, 
They're in the boat. They're fishing. The Lord appears to them. And you see, you see Peter's love in verse 7 that when he knew that it was the Lord on the shore that, that he, Peter sees that it's the Lord. And because of his great desire to be with him, it says, So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put, on, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea and he just starts swimming to the shore. He can't get to the Lord fast enough. It shows his heart. Shows his heart, his love for him, even though he failed. And so what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? Well, Peter denied him three times. And so the Lord restores him with three different and separate occasions of him to show not only his restoration of Peter, but also for Peter to reaffirm his love. He did so tenderly. We can't look at all of this, but in verse 15, you know it. Simon said to uh, They had finished breakfast. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And then Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. And then the disciple who had failed him so miserably, Jesus affirms that he will yet go to his grave in an act of faithfulness, not an act of denial. That was for a moment. But the enduring testimony of Peter's life is going to be his faithfulness to the end. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to a place you do not wish. And he said this, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. And of course, Church tradition tells us that Peter was actually crucified even as the Lord was, except not as the Lord was. Because of his deep love and reverence for Christ, he said he didn't want to be crucified in the same way, and he was crucified upside down. Most likely a true story. Peter was faithful. He did learn his lesson, but he learned it through brokenness. He learned it through having to feel his weakness. And beloved, it's the same for us. The difference is, the difference is that Mark's God's work in his children is that they turn to the Lord and they trust him. That we endure and we endure because God has done a perfect work of grace in Christ. Let's pray and then we'll take the table. Father, we thank you for this account. We thank you because it reminds us that we are weak and though we're weak, you are strong. That we fail, but you never fail. That we give in to fear, but you never leave us ultimately alone, but use whatever Whatever trial that comes in our life that exposes us ultimately for our good. To grow us to be more like the Savior. To strengthen the muscle of faith. To turn from sin that may be lurking in our heart. We thank you for the example of Peter, but we thank you more for the great example of the tenderness of our Savior. And it is you, Christ, that we remember now in this table. May our fellowship with you be sincere, our repentance deep and true, and our love and commitment unfailing by your sovereign grace in our life. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.